listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Um, it is a privilege to sing together as a church. That's part of the reasons why we gather, to hear the voices of other people. You're singing the same words, and it's a, it's a point of, of I'm joining in community and declaring truth with the community that I belong to. That's why we sing. And so I hope that is encouraging every, every week that you get to um, walk in here. Humans are creatures hardwired with desires, deep desires. Every person within the sound of my voice this morning, even up to Oklahoma as they're, as they're listening in, they're built with deep desires, longings to be met with satisfaction. And one of the things that these desires lead us to do is they, they lead us to come up with strategies of Fulfillment, ways to scratch the itch underneath the surface. And so as you try to fulfill these desires, this could consist of you diving headfirst into accumulating all the things that you want. The money, the relationships, the experiences, the accomplishments, whatever it may be. You may agree with uh, Solomon, the biblical author in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. So you may be trying to scratch that itch, that desire within you, and you may try to just dive headfirst into whatever it may be, or you could go the other way. I have these desires, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm not gonna get too attached to anything. So nothing can hurt me. And you, and you say, well, nothing really matters, so I'm gonna try to just stay as far away as whatever my heart desires so I don't get hurt. See, one of the modern myths of progress, is, especially in our cultural moment right now, is that we have never had more pathways to pleasure, more pathways to happiness, more ways of enjoying life. Yet, if you use the rise of depression, if you use the rise of suicide as any indicator, you would see that none of these things are actually working. Tim Keller states, he says, on the whole, that we are in denial about the depth and magnitude of our discontent. So the problem for each and every one of us is that we have strategies of filling our desires that are ultimately failing. We have strategies of filling these things, this deep, deep longing underneath the surface, and they are ultimately failing. And a guy named Ronald Rollheiser uh, states in his book, The Holy Longing, he says that there is within us a fundamental dis-ease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. Maybe you walked in here this morning with that dis-ease. You walked in with a smile on your face. You shook some hands. You maybe even lipped some of the lyrics this morning. 
You said that you were fine. You grabbed some coffee, but you're not. You have this continual unrest that plagues you. You can't really sleep. That nothing you experience or buy can really get rid of it. It can maybe, uh, you know, numb the pain a little bit. But there's this continual unrest deep in your soul, and yet you would agree with every human being that is said in history, either explicitly or implicitly, there is just something missing. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, has a quote that would explain what you're feeling. He says this, he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desires, well, there's a thing as sex. And this is the money line. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, every earthly pleasure that you have ever experienced... The best things in your life that you have ever experienced, they faded. I love Thanksgiving. It's coming up this week. It's probably, okay, it's probably my favorite holiday. I can't convince my family of this, but it's just food. Like, you just get lots and lots of food, right? It's the best one. And, and everyone eats with you. It's a great holiday. And, and one of the things I love about it is the mass amounts of dessert that just comes with this holiday. Amen. Thank you, my brother Marshall. But one of the things that I notice after Thanksgiving is that I get hungry the very next day. That pleasure, maybe not the next day, I eat a lot. Maybe the day, the day after that. That pleasure of eating and being fulfilled goes away. Every earthly pleasure that you have ever experienced faded. Everything that ever made you happy on this earth disappoints you at some point. It, it didn't live up to the hype. And Lewis's point here, and the biblical writers would agree, is that our desires run so deep, so intense, that the temporary things of this world cannot sustain it. There is a deep restlessness to be made whole, to be filled, to be satisfied. And here's the question that I keep coming back to, and I think the Holy Spirit just prompted me to ask this question of myself. Am I too distracted to see that I may be filling these desires with things that are not eternal? Am I so distracted that I don't even know that I have these deep desires underneath the surface? Am I just numbing myself? See, Christianity gives us clear answers for why we feel this deep desire. In the opening pages of Scripture, we see an eternal, infinite, good, and powerful God create all things. And in the midst of creating all the things, he created humanity in his image. And we could talk about what it, be, what it means to be made in the image of God, but it, it has a deep meaning for our lives. And one of the things that being made in the image of God gives us is what's called a telos, a, a purpose. 
In the opening pages of Scripture, you see a picture of God and humanity that is rightly aligned. God is, is walking with his people. The people are walking with God. They worshiped and obeyed. They were working, and it was great. God was right there with them. They were aligned in their telos, their purpose. Humans were satisfied in a place of rest because their purpose was being walked in. And Christianity tells the story of the problem of evil and the problem of humanity. When humans rejected their telos, their purpose, rejected their creator for lesser things, and they sought autonomy and their own authority to be able to what? Create their purpose. And the Bible describes the scene in which humans are expelled from this environment, this, this perfectly satisfactory environment in which they were perfectly fulfilled and satisfied. And here's where this deep longing comes from, is because when we got expelled from this environment, our longings, our desires came with us. The deep, deep longings to be made whole from an eternal being came with us with us, and we long to get back to this place. We were made by an eternal being for eternity, yet we live in the temporary around the temporal things. Augustine would say that our souls are restless until they find rest in God. So two things happen when we rebelled against God, a misalignment in who we worship and what we worship, a separation from God who created us and a love of created things over the creator. We love our sin. And underneath the search for fulfillment, the search for wealth, the search for promotion, the search for relationship, for achievement, the high or the buzz, there's a desire for a place for a place. We've been walking through the five solas, and we've been unpacking what's called Reformation theology, and that is a summary of the foundational Protestant theology. And we spoke about how over 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to a church door, sparking a revolution in the way of Scripture, salvation, and how the church ultimately was viewed. And what these five solas are meant to do is they're meant to point us to the heart of the gospel. And that's why they're relevant today. And so they're mutually dependent doctrines that give an overview to our salvation, how we are saved. And we've seen three so far, right? Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And today we're going to see through Christ alone, solus Christus. And here's what's tricky Without minimizing the mutual dependence of these five solas, because next week we're going to look at by God's glory alone, we need to consider that one sola plays a distinct role in connecting the others to bring us to the full glory of the gospel. A writer named Stephen Wellam says this. He says, Solum Christus stands at the center of the other four solas, connecting him into a coherent theological system. 
Because here's how this works. It is through Christ alone, or excuse me, it is through Scripture alone that Christ is revealed. It is through Christ that grace is gifted. It is through faith in Christ that we are saved. And it is for by for God's glory that Christ worked on our behalf. And if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but faith is only as strong as the object in which you place your faith in. So Christ alone is at the center of this doctrine because Scripture places Christ at the center of its word. But there's, there's a problem here, okay? Because when I say Christ alone, what are we talking about? We're talking about the exclusivity of Jesus to say that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. That's what we're saying. And to say that in a world with many gods, or even to say that in a world with many religions, can be offensive. Because Jesus has always been a controversial figure. He's always and will be misunderstood. But let me speak to my, my, uh, my Bible Belt people for just a second. Because in a world with all I need is a little coffee and a whole lot of Jesus memes, you know what I'm talking about, I have to bring up a point in which Francis Schaeffer brought up about 50 years ago. And I, have, I brought the quote with me so you can read it. He says, I have come to a point when, when I hear the word Jesus, which means so much to me because of the person of the historic Jesus and his work, I listen carefully because I have with sorrow become more afraid of the word Jesus than almost any word in the modern world. The word is used as a contentless banner. There is no rational scriptural content by which to test it. And he says, increasingly over the past few years, the word Jesus, separated from the content of the scriptures, has been the enemy of the Jesus of history, the Jesus who died and rose and is coming again and who is this eternal son of God. Because we have a misunderstanding of Jesus in our culture. We don't get to define who Jesus is. In fact, in the book of John, we're going to look at in just a second, there is seven I am statements. Ways of Jesus defining himself. He says in John chapter 6, that I am the bread of life. He says in John chapter 8 that I am the light of the world. He says in John chapter 10 twice that I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. He says in John chapter 11 that he is the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He says in John chapter 15, I am the true vine. We don't define Jesus. He defines himself. And so our passage today, Jesus gives us another I am statement. And in context, John 14 is found in one of the richest parts of Scripture in John 13 through 17. And in it, you see several sermons as Jesus is just a day away from going to the cross to die. He's gathering his disciples, and he begins his farewell sermons. These are the last things that his disciples will hear him teach. And so we pick it up in John 14, verse 1, where Jesus has just announced in John 13 that he is leaving, number one. And on top of that, someone is going to betray him. And on top of that, Peter, by the way, you're going to deny me three times. 
So notice how Jesus begins in verse 1. Read with me through verse 7. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you can know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, You had known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Note the very first thing that Jesus tells his disciples. He tells his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. See, I find it interesting that on a night in which Jesus should be in agony, in which his heart should be troubled, heading towards the cross, he is still the one that is comforting his people. He is still the one that is instructing. His disciples are confused. They don't know where he's going. They don't understand what's really going to happen. Even after repetitive remarks about what is going to happen, they don't understand. They're taken by surprise of what's going to happen over the next couple days. But Jesus instructs them, and this is how this connects to the five solas. He instructs them to faith. This word belief means faith. He says, believe in me. As you believe in God, believe in me. He's saying, have faith. Trust in what? Believe in what? Believe in God. And so what Jesus is doing is he's doing two things. He's showing the object of their faith, but also Jesus is equating belief in God with belief in him. He says, believe in God and believe in me. As they would believe in God's word, believe in the words that he is about to say because he is God. Why should they trust Jesus? What is Jesus about to tell them to comfort them? Jesus continues. He says that his departure, his leaving, is for their benefit. His leaving is providing a preparation for them. Now, what is what is he prepping them for. Now, I know you 90s kids, I know what song is going on in your head right now because it was in my head all week, right? It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. Shake your head, please. Just get, let, revel in this, right? Okay? Uh, I don't even know how a football field got into that song, but it is somehow, okay? It's not in the text. It's some, I don't know. But anyway, the KJV translation is actually pretty unfortunate here because it translates this word house in mansions, and that's really kind of the wrong idea. This has some images in our minds. A mansion has an image in our minds that's pretty unhelpful because it's not the quality of the estate, but rather the owner of the estate who will be with us that is giving us joy here. And Jesus is literally saying here, I am going to prepare a dwelling place for you on my father's estate, a home, a place that you desire, I am going to. 
Keller, uh, Timothy Keller is really helpful here. He says, every human being needs a home. That's what we talked about, right? And what is a home? It's not a house. It's more than geography, not less, but more. A home is a place you belong. A home is a place where you're totally accepted. It's an open door and a yellow light inside and a fire, and you're expected, and supper is ready. And as you walk in, the smells of food you love the most are unbelievably delicious, and everyone in the room rises up in delight and joy to greet you, and you're led over, and you sit down in your chair. That is home. It's what my four-year-old does when we get home where she just runs and lays on the couch and goes, ah, That's home. And when you think back to what the story we told in Genesis, all of us have been misplaced. We've all been spiritually misplaced. We are homeless. We are people without a permanent dwelling place, and it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Things just aren't right, are they? And it's something that we deeply desire. And what Jesus is using, he's using this metaphor here so our minds can understand God doesn't live in a house, but he has a dwelling place. And we once dwelled with him, and ever since we have, we've been searching for that homeland, and that emptiness comes up all the time, and we search for ways to be fulfilled, but we can't scratch the itch. That's why wealth and success never satisfies And Jesus' words here are so important, so comforting. He says that I am going to prepare a place, and where you are going to be, I'm going to be. You see, the Gospel of John, one commentary says, says the Gospel of John is not trying to portray Jesus as being in the construction business of building or renovating homes. Rather, Jesus was in the business of leading people to God. See, Jesus' main mission, his main goal is to lead his people to God. It is their great comfort. It is our great hope. And Jesus' antidote to their trouble, to our unrest, is to point to a time of homecoming. And Jesus says that there will be a day when we're going to be reunited. And that's why he says, where I am, you may also be. And so what we call heaven, one commentary says, I love this, what we call heaven, John calls where I am. Clearly then, heaven in John's gospel is most simply the real presence of Jesus Christ himself with his people. This is the next life's most simple, compact, intimate, and adequate definition. How much of our ideas of heaven have nothing to do with Jesus How much of our ideas of the afterlife have nothing to do with what Jesus accomplished for us? See, heaven is heaven because Jesus will be there. This is dwelling language, but here's where the rubber meets the road, right? This all sounds great. Like, how can our deepest desires be met? Why is Jesus going to prepare a place for us? And how can we get there? I love Thomas's question here, right? Because it leads to one of the best answers that we have in the Gospels. Okay, that's why I love when kids ask questions. Thomas here asks a lot of questions. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Right, you can just hear him asking this, right? 
Okay, we know you're going to, you said Father's house, yes, but where is that? Okay, we don't have Google Maps. If we don't know the destination, how are we going to know the way there, right? And this is one of the most quoted verses in the Gospel of John. It says, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus answers him, I am the way. Jesus' claim here is substantial because here is a claim of intimacy and a claim of divinity. When Jesus says that I am the way, he is telling Thomas not to look for some other road or path, but rather the way to the Father is through him. He is the way. There is no other religion that would claim this. Other religions would say, here is your path. Now, climb this mountain and satisfy yourself that way, and then maybe you'll find God. Do good things, be a good person. But Jesus says, this is not the way. I am the way. Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth of God and the life of God. And when he speaks He speaks on behalf of God. He is the word made flesh. He is the life of God because he is life. He has life in himself, if you read in John chapter 5. The resurrection and the life. It is only because he is the truth and the life that Jesus could be the way to the Father. You see, in the days before the Reformation... There was a widely held belief that Christ's work was not enough. They acknowledged that salvation was based upon the work of Christ, but they would not say it was based upon Christ's work alone. And what the Church of Rome required was certain actions, taking certain sacraments and blessing of the priest on top of Christ's work so that the person could become righteous. And what the Roman church was really saying was that the way to the Father was through Jesus and your own work. And what Jesus is claiming here, when he is going to prepare a place for you, he is referring to the days ahead when he would take on death. He would walk a road. He would walk down the way. And he would get Nails in his hands and feet. And as they were nailing the hands and his feet after he was being beaten beyond recognition, the people would mock him. People would spit upon him. And he's paying a penalty that he did not owe. And his work is not only his death on the cross, but his perfect obedience in his life. And when the reformers were working out what it means to live by Christ alone, this word justification kept coming up. It's a legal term. And what this term means is that if you were to walk into a courtroom and the judge was to look at all the things you have ever done, there would be no doubt that you would be guilty. But here's what it means when Jesus says that I am the only way to the Father. When you stand before the judge, he is not seeing your works, but Christ. He's not seeing your deeds, but Christ. He's not seeing your imperfections, but Christ's perfection. 
You see, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, the reformers had a phrase that would capture what takes place, and it's called the great exchange. The great exchange is all about who represents you as you stand before God on judgment day. You see, in Christ alone, it is not only that our sin was forgiven, but our guilty robes have been exchanged for the righteous robes of Christ. And when God sees us, he doesn't see all the things that you've ever done in your life. Do you realize this? Think about this. Think about the darkness that's in your heart. When when God sees you, he doesn't see the sinful nature He sees the perfect nature of Christ. You're washed clean, and you're righteously standing before God only through Christ. You see, it is through Christ alone, his work and righteousness, that we are reconciled to the Father. It is in Christ that our search for strategies, fulfilling our own deepest longings can end. Because of the words that Jesus says, you will be where I will be. So when you think about your deep desires, your deep longings, there is so much more to Christ alone than just being forgiven of your sins. Because if you seek to be forgiven this morning, in Christ alone. But do you seek to be fully known and fully loved in, in, in Christ alone, right? Do you seek to have hope in the midst of your troubles? Let not your heart be troubled in Christ alone. Do you seek to have the diseased healed in Christ alone? Our Savior went to prepare a place for you. And his preparation started by walking on a road. His preparation started by being convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. His preparation started by taking the lashings and the penalty of death that he did not owe. And our Savior was laid in a tomb. And after three days he rose and he defeated death, having victory over the death and sin of this world. So that when we place our faith in him, no one comes to the Father Except through me. It is through Christ alone that we can be holistically healed. You see, heaven has lots of misconceptions. But here's what we know. If this world, with all its seas and canyons and valleys and peaks and airs and and immensities and infinities, with all its glory and all its beauty, if this is the kind of world that God gives to a people who are his enemies, 
what do you think he's going to give to people who are his friends? You see, guys, we, Dallas Willard, the writer, would say this. We don't believe something by merely saying we believe it or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. When we're talking about Christ alone, that's a really easy thing to say. But I have to ask, is there people in this room or listening online that are diseased? There's just something underneath. And guess what? Religion is a way to try to fill that desire, and it's not a very good one because it looks like you're holy. The Apostle John would say that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So here's what I ask. We're actually going to do something in this a little bit different. I'm going to ask the, the people in Oklahoma as well to, to pay attention uh, as to, the, uh, to this as well. Um, but I'm going to ask you to, to move into a time of concentrated prayer. I'm going to ask Keegan to come up. Concentrated prayer and worship. Because I just get the feeling that there's a lot of you that have heard that Christ has died for your sins. That he offers forgiveness. But you don't act like that. There's something that you would say. That, I, mean, I mean, I would say that, but I'm just still trying to add to my own righteousness here. There's a dis-ease underneath that's something that you long for. And I hope that the words of the Apostle John would give you comfort, great comfort, that we have a Savior that has gone to prepare a place for you. It's nothing that you can earn. It's nothing that you deserve. But the greatest longing that we have is a home. A home. And we have a Savior that took a cross upon his back for that very purpose. So we're going to sing, absolutely. We're going to sing um, a familiar song. But hey, if you need to pray this morning, pray with your spouse, pray with someone in your community group. Of just, you know, I, I feel like I haven't expressed this to anybody but I feel like I'm earning my salvation here. I feel like there's something I need to lay down and say, in Christ alone, this is the time. I would encourage even the people in Oklahoma, if this is a time where you can go away from uh, the cabin as, as a family, as by yourself, and lay down the thing that you are trying to grasp. I'm gonna ask you to put your eyes upon Christ. So if you need to sit there for a minute as we worship, as people stand and sing around you and pray, do that. If you need to seek out a pastor or uh, a, a leader, do that. If you need to pray with your spouse, do that. Respond in a way that the Lord is leading you to do. Let me pray for us and then we'll um, sing. Oh God, 
Our hearts desire a place. They desire a place of wholeness. And God, we know that you have sent your son to solve our deepest needs. Number one, the sin, the sin that is in our hearts and our minds. God, you paid for it. God, I pray that this morning, whether believer or non-believer, I pray that they would release some of the strongholds that they feel, the things that they're searching after, the things that they would say, man, this is how I'm trying to fulfill my life right now. I know it. And I pray that they would claim the promise in Christ alone. You're a good God that hears the prayers of his people. So God, just over the next five minutes or so, just be with us as we worship and as we take our concerns to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.